Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falconer, and today I'm joined by Jordan Wrigley, Researcher for Health and Wellness at the Future of Privacy Forum. And we'll be talking about digital health data privacy. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sean. Thanks for being here. You know, I tend to always say I'm excited to talk to the guests, which is true just because I say it all the time doesn't doesn't make it any less valid. But I am truly excited for this because you are the first person that we've had on that has deep expertise in health related data privacy. So I'm excited to get into that. But before we get there, can you please introduce yourself? Who are you? What's your background, work history? How did you end up where you are today? Uh, My name is Jordan Wrigley, and as you said, I am the researcher and lead for health and wellness at the Future of Privacy Forum. Uh, My background is actually as a medical researcher and information professional, and I sort of, uh, as many people do in privacy, fell into it on accident where I volunteered for projects around privacy, and that eventually led me to keep answering questions about privacy, gain expertise, and eventually find my way into FPF, um, Future of Privacy Forum um, for short. Uh, and find my way into a more privacy-focused role in a nonprofit from academia. Awesome. And then where did, you know, what sparked this sort of original interest in privacy? You said you started sort of volunteering for those kind of projects or answering those types of questions. Was there something in particular that drew you to, you know, privacy? Yeah, so in health-related research, which is really my main foci, health and in particular environmental studies and social ideas around environmental health and people's health as it relates to the environment, um, much of those studies, much of that research is now crowd crowdsourced through things like apps. Um, participants are operating through highly technological um, and created digital information, volunteering a lot of data. Some they do know, sometimes they're aware of what they're volunteering, sometimes they're not, and there's a little bit more than they're aware of, and they're not necessarily entirely informed about how it's going to be used. And so that led me to ask a lot of questions about, like, what does privacy mean when we're trying to do our best to help and make the world a better place? Uh, how important is privacy? How should privacy take form in the technical world, which is necessarily limited by our uh, uh, any given technological knowledge based on a team or even broadly as the technological world moves forward. Mm-hmm. And I imagine, you know, because of the such a huge, te- uh, you know, technological shift in the last like 20 years to uh, everything kind of moving online, the types of things that we were doing in the past, you know, maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago for sort of managing someone's personal privacy around digital health has you know really changed as the the you know technology around the industry has changed as well and it may the sort of rules and regulations may not have stayed up to date with sort of the growth and change that has happened within the actual technology industry right uh very true i would say um health technology is probably outpacing the vast majority of other technologies um also that it's technology technology agnostic. So if there is a particular form of technology, health is going to figure out a way to use that, whether that's using things like AI or uh, virtual reality, um, virtual reality for things like teaching how to do surgeries or even doing surgeries remotely um, and figuring out how to use things like trackers to do remote patient sensing or radar to track uh, Parkinson's patients in their own home. All great things in many ways, but privacy becomes an issue. Right. Yeah. And I feel like whenever there's some sort of new technology, you know, this, you saying that reminds me of this is like the like 
first couple of use cases, there's almost always some sort of like digital health, healthcare related use case that people are exploring, whether that's, you know, AI or, you know, some other type of technology like, uh, um, you know, a physical device or some sort. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you work for the future of privacy form FPF. What is the future of privacy form? So the Future of Privacy Forum, or FPF, is a global nonprofit organization that's usually based in Washington, D.C., but we have offices across the globe in Brussels, Singapore, and Tel Aviv. And our sort of goal is to bring people together, academics, civil society advocates, government officials, to evaluate social policy, legal implications for data use, and really identify the risks and develop appropriate protections for privacy. What are the, I guess, like typical activities or focus areas of the organization? So we do tend to be heavily privacy focused and data privacy focused in particular, although sometimes data and information tend to overlap when we have these discussions. Um, and we tend to look at exactly what policy is doing. You mentioned that there's sort of a big gap and some catch up that needs to happen in policy and regulations related to uh, data and data privacy, and in my area, health data privacy. So we look at that and examine how we are growing, how we are um, working with this in a way that maximizes the benefits of data while also maintaining the value of privacy. So how does uh, like a people or a company typically engage with the FPF? So generally we have member companies, um, but everybody's different for us. Um, we have a wide ranging portfolio and a lot of it's just about conversation, starting conversations and continuing conversations and responding to new information as it comes in. Mm -hmm. And in terms of your, you know, the FPS role with sort of the larger role, the privacy, and maybe, maybe we can even, you know, restrict that to the, um, you know, health and wellness area that you're focused on, but what is the type of thing that, you know, FPS is producing? Are they helping sort of, you know, guide the transformation of, um, you know, regulations or, you know, guide, uh, or help, you know, um, companies understand like best practices around, you know, privacy and data privacy and compliance? So really what we're doing is offering education. We're offering our best understanding of things. And we generally do not take stances on any given piece of reg regulation. There may be exceptions at some points, but rarely do we take stances on any given piece of reg uh, legislation. We really just want to help people and companies and um, lawmakers, regulators understand how a particular piece of proposed uh, policy or regulation will impact everything. Because sometimes policy and regulation happens and with the best of intents, but not the whole pack picture is being seen. And really data as a whole, whether in health or outside of it, needs to be seen holistically. And from my perspective in health, health touches virtually everything. Uh, just because it's not in one's mind a piece of health data doesn't mean it couldn't be indicative of health or inferential of health. Yeah, I think that's a big challenge for companies when it comes to, you know, privacy. And I imagine it's, you know, maybe even more prevalent when it comes to sort of digital health data, but it's something that, you know, touches all areas of business. It, it's just not something that can just, you know, privacy, security, your sort of posture around those things as a company can't exist in a silo as something that essentially almost has to be like a cult, part of your culture as a company. I think that's well said. So what is your role and area of expertise at the FPF? So uh, my title is Research for Health and Wellness and Lead for the Health and Wellness Portfolio, which is a big package. 
Um, everything that you could think of possibly related to health falls under there. Everything from genetics to AI to medical devices to uh, non-HIPAA-covered data and sometimes HIPAA-covered data as those worlds come closer and closer together in conversation. Um, I relate to and to speak to companies that uh, provide health divisions or health products that are maybe not their main output. Uh, and I do a lot of discussion with Hill staffers about what's going on in their world, what questions they may have, um, and ideally help us all find a better consensus about how to maximize benefits of various products outcoming while also maintaining privacy in the way that the American people continue to, and global people, now that we are a global entity at FPF, um, tend to keep thinking about it and responding and developing new ways of thinking about privacy. It must be very, you know, challenging to just kind of keep up to date with the landscape of, you know, um, it, you know, what's happening in industry from a company perspective, what's happening from like legislation's perspective, and then doing that on like a worldwide basis. That's a lot to, to try to cover and manage. It, it is quite a lot. Um, fortunately, I am what is called an autodidact. I enjoy teaching myself. So I tend to spend a lot of time reading, catching up. Um, and just trying to understand um, in a broader picture the way people are thinking about privacy, whether that's consumers or companies or policymakers. Yeah, that's a, you know, I think a good sort of lead into one thing that I would like to talk a little bit about. And we touched on this briefly, but it feels like there's been, you know, a shift, I think, in privacy sensitivity with regards to, you know, medical and health data in the last few years, both probably from a consumer and a business perspective. What is from your you know perspective, has led to this growing concern and focus from both consumers and and companies. Well, in general, I always say um, in the U.S. and maybe in similar uh, political and economic situations, we have a pay-to-play system for our health. Um, in order to access healthcare, we do need to be able to pay a certain amount of money, and there is concern that certain data may be used to implicate people in certain health conditions, which may raise their, raise their premiums or otherwise make it harder financially for them to access health care, um, which does tend to up consternation very quickly. There's also a rapidly shifting um, move towards the consumer slash patient. Now we have consumer patients um, moving sort of their own health into their own hands, a little bit of empowerment, if you will. Um, in historical times, we have a medical complex that was very paternalistic, shifting away from that now. Um, but that certainly set certain precedents, particularly with marginalized and multi-marginalized communities, where they knew going to the doctor could not have, may very likely not have a great outcome. And so the idea of using technology to shift control of one's health into one's own hands is very appealing, I think, to the American sort of um, zeitgeist. Yeah, for sure. You know, in one of the things you you mentioned there, and it's not, I don't know if it's something that I ever really you know thought of or realized, but you know, in the U.S., as you mentioned, there's a pay to play system, and most sort of westernized parts of the the world have uh, some form of universal health care. So, how I guess has the way that you know, um, health digital health privacy and the way that, you know, we think about it in the U.S., how is it different maybe than the rest of the world? And is there like uh, some kind of impact to the way businesses need to think about it when they're operating in the U.S. versus, you know, some other parts of the world? 
Absolutely. Um, I definitely think in the U.S. there is an inherent transactional nature to health. And in so being, there's often systems of power. So who has control over what? Who has power over whom? Um, and there's always this idea that sort of instead of paying money for healthcare, in some ways we're paying with our data, um, which can have its benefits. Um, in general, for women in particular, uh, as, a, as a medical researcher, we haven't had women be part of really strongly part and represented in um, medical research, particularly around things like reproductive care. And so like having that real world data, which hasn't reached its full mature potential yet, I would say, but having the potential to build that and very quickly close the gender and sex gap in medical research is very appealing. Um, at the same time, we exist in this tension, um, especially now in our post-Dobbs landscape, where women may be placing themselves at risk for um, violations of privacy and even you know prosecution in some cases. Yeah, so... I mean, that, that I think, uh, paints a picture uh, from uh, there's both good and bad, I guess, with sort of the system that's here where, uh, you know, there is this push to help people have sort of control, democratize health in some fashion through technology. But at the same time, there's, you know, uh, difficulties where you essentially are not only a patient, but you're a consumer as well. How has that changed the way that we think about what should be like regulated health data? Is it different in the US versus other parts of the world in terms of like what we would consider you know, sensitive health related information? I definitely think so. When there's sort of the issue is harm is sort of taken out of the picture, it's a lot less dangerous in people's mind. There's a lot less consternation. It might be kind of weird for uh, data about ourselves, about our bodies to be collected. But if no one can do harm with it, then it's not so much an issue. And maybe people are more willing to take the risk when it's a lower impact risk. The man magnitude of the risk overall is um, a lot less. And so I think that when we think about health, sensitive health data in the U.S., we have to think not just about what is an immediate health data, something like heart rate or um, weight or anything like that, not anything that is obviously a health-related attribute, but anything that can be inferred from a collection of those attributes. So uh, someone whom I look up to and admire greatly says you can't use the number of cars to infer someone's health. It's true, not, not with any level of accuracy. Uh, but if you add one, even one attribute onto that, that first attribute, like are all the cars insured, if they have them, what make and or model are the cars, then you can start making some inferences to certain varying degrees of accuracy at that point. So it doesn't take much to make inferences about someone's health and or healthcare access. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just had a few quick reminders. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button so you can always get the latest episode and help others discover the show by leaving a rating and review in your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Last thing before I get you back to the interview, if you are interested in the topics discussed in this podcast, then you should definitely, definitely join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com community. There you can meet other interesting and like-minded individuals like yourself, share your expertise, or just passively engage, totally up to you. All right, now back to the show. What types of tools or technologies should a company be considering investing in in order to improve, uh, you know, improve their privacy and security posture when dealing with health data? 
I'd say the first thing that it's always worth at any anywhere you are, whether you're at the consumer end, a company, a collector, a holder, or a processor of data, um, it's definitely worth thinking about where you are within that sort of data flow and then choosing tools and techniques that are sort of appropriate to that context. So if, um, let's say, for example, a company is more of the shifting data to the user side. So everything remains local on a user's device. Then they may want to really push on things like multi-factor authentication and really good password standards and things like that, things that are um, actionable by the consumer themselves on their own device, anything they can do to facilitate that. Um, if you're on the end where the data exists in a cloud situation, you know, investing in really great security is always a great practice um, and investing really in thoughtful future thinking ways of addressing security. Um, we're very rapidly seeing um, in what is called the Brussels effect, things from the GDPR abroad globally are starting to make their way into the American consciousness of the policymaker and the regulator. And we're seeing more and more of those sort of uh, regulations and policy approaches coming into play in the US. So it may be worth taking those examples and thinking, all right, how do we engineer to address this policy that we think may be coming up anyway? Yeah, right. There's, you know, probably one way to kind of look at where regulations might be going in the future is to look at, you know, where they are now in certain, you know, geographies like Europe that maybe are a little bit further ahead when it comes to sort of uh, you know, regulating the use of this type of data versus other, you know, parts of the world that you might be operating in. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's also worth keeping an eye on even those countries and regions that are very new to the data privacy world, because as a colleague of mine um, published recently, a really great piece on privacy in Africa is that privacy is a socially and culturally structured idea. Um, and that, especially if a company's working globally, they may want to be thinking for each one of those contexts individually. Yeah, I think we, we've touched on this before in, in past episodes, but I think you know, privacy is very much a, like a cultural thing. If you ask somebody you know, in one country about what it means, what, what does personal privacy mean versus another country, you might get very, very different answers. And I think one of the mistakes that we've made in this industry has been to sort of apply our own version or our own cultural understanding of privacy to building a global product where it might not actually be the case when you are sort of distributing your product in different parts of the world. That's very real. A bias is a challenge to all of us and something that's come out of all of us, not just industry. Um, within engineering, specifically health data, one of the things um, that's always great to see companies consider and address is whether or not the basis for their health data has already bias built into it. Because historically, medical data and medical information that we have and that we've based our assumptions on is bias, unfortunately. And so continuing to recreate that in the digital landscape and digital health really just sort of continues and recreates those biases in really unfortunate and unhelpful ways that in many ways, if, you're, if we're going to make the value proposition that this is really going to help patients and empower patients, then we need to figure out who the patient is. And if that's going to include BIPOC, marginalized and multi-marginalized communities who have seen harm at the hands of medical complex historically. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important thing, especially, you know, when you think about 
um, areas of uh, technology like AI and machine learning where you're, the value of the model that you produce is largely dependent on the value of the data that you're putting in. So if the data is you know, biased towards a certain type of individual, because that's essentially what we have health information for, or that's who's volunteering for you know, the clinical trials or whatever it is, well, now you might not be able to holistically apply that, you know, whatever that amazing technology is to everybody in the industry, it might actually be bringing in that bias to the model and lead to really poor results with certain types of people. It's true. And it's, I think it's great to think of it as incomplete, these uh, algorithms and certain AI products. Um, it's fair to say they're incomplete as either a diagnostic tool or a decision-making tool. Uh, it's really decision assistance at this point. It can help inform, but ultimately uh, the choice has got to be made by you know, either the consumer, if we're dealing with a non-HIPAA product, something that doesn't involve a doctor, or by the patient and their providers. Are there, you know, programs or uh, existing, you know, I, I don't know, existing um, frameworks that companies are starting to rely on in order to make sure that they don't have these types of biases? Like how, what, you know, can a company essentially do that is maybe trying to do something that's going to be helpful, but they want to make sure that they're not bringing in sort of that, that bias that might exist in the data set to begin with? I've seen a range of different potential frames, solutions, approaches to this, uh, but the most effective one by far I have seen is to hire from the communities that may uh, be uh, affected by bias and potential poor outcomes, is that that experience itself is an essential part of making a good product. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a really, really good recommendation. There's no matter what, you know, as a white male, there's, you know, no matter what I do to educate myself, I'm never going to have exactly the same background as someone who's, you know, different from me that grew up under different circumstances. And you need to be able to have someone who can, you know, represent that population of users and understand their stories and sort of their perspectives. So I'd like to talk through a few other, you know, real world situations and pick your brain on how a company in these situations should be thinking about privacy and data management. So let's say that I have a gym and I'm collecting information about my clients, like you no know, medical issues, history of heart disease, surgeries, back problems, and so on. This stuff starts to kind of touch on HIPAA, even though maybe it's not, when you think of a gym, it's not a traditional sort of health tech or healthcare company. What do I need to know about my responsibilities in terms of privacy when it comes to the collection and management of this type of data? So we touched on this a little bit previously, but again, it's good to assess where the data is actually going to sit and who has responsibility for what part of the data. So in the case of a, something like a gym where you exist outside of the HIPAA um, coverage area, you might want to consider like how much data do you actually need to be able to work with your client? How much data do you actually need to be able to ensure a good outcome? Um, how much data do you need to be able to keep for how long in order to maintain your records or um, achieve any other purpose you might have for it? After that, which is what we call uh, data minimization, which is always a great approach. Um, after considering data minimization, it's also worth checking out uh, how much that data needs to flow. So if they just have a system where that data sits and stays and that's where it is and the only people that are going to reference it are you know, coaches or people who are working with the client or maybe the client themselves, 
that's great. But even now with uh, on the client side of things or the consumer side of things, uh, it's worth figuring out as a consumer and as potentially as the company you're working with, how much data needs to flow between you and how you're going to control who has access in between that flow. Because every time you integrate a new tool, every time the data moves between two entities, there's an opportunity for privacy to either be inflicted upon or uh, a breach in a worst case scenario. I imagine, you know, one thing, important consideration would be, even if the data is sort of stored, you know, locally, but you might be utilizing some of that data with third-party services, whether that's email or, you know, maybe even a texting service or something like that. You need to probably, you know, take into account what is sort of the, the security and data policies for that third-party service as well. Exactly. And so at every level here, we then come to the issue of consent, which is a challenge. Um, many models in the U.S. are consent-based models, which are very difficult in health. Um, even in health itself, pre-digital um, health, we see issues with people not fully understanding what they are consenting, consenting to in a patient-provider relationship. And really, that's being reenacted in many ways in digital health. Um, and would be great to see us come up with models that are better suited to fully informing people what they're getting into and fully informing them of the potential harms. So kind of, you know, sticking in the fitness industry to some degree, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but there's a lot of, you know, fitness trackers now that track biometrics and they can even, you know, detect certain conditions. I've seen certain fitness trackers that say they can detect, you know, early signs of COVID, for example. Where is the line between a fitness tracker and an actual medical device? And I guess, like, should these trackers have certain regulatory demands placed on them above and beyond where we are today? So this is very interesting, and it's, uh, this is a fascinating thing to me. I love talking about trackers because their value is very high. Um, the ability to understand one's bodily metrics can be a huge boon in terms of controlling and monitoring health conditions, particularly chronic health conditions. Uh, however, with the big kind of divide between a tracker and non-HIPAA covered data and then HIPAA covered data is that there's really no provider or medical professional involved. Like it's as the phrase goes direct to consumer or DTC um, is that now this is in the hands of the consumer and most devices will come with the caveat that they are not in fact a medical device. Um, they are not meant to be used to treat in particular any sort of illness or to diagnose any sort of illness. It's uh, that line between being informed and help getting help making decisions or making choices and uh, actually having the device make the choices for you. What are the like regulatory requirements typically for an actual medical device? So for an actual medical device, um, typically you'll go through FDA. Uh, this can go for hardware and software. Um, and anything that is say, uh, prescribed, and there are very specific definitions for prescribed, uh, by a provider will then be covered under HIPAA. Now, there are certain um, areas where that gets a little gray, um, but in general, FDA will define um, anything that's really medically implicit and may carry with it high potential for harmful outcomes or very, very beneficial outcomes, so life-saving uh, medical devices such as uh, one that always comes to mind for me is diabetes delivery devices. Those go under the skin. 
Um, they are absolutely necessary for life-saving and maintenance of health as well as quality of life. So they fall under FDA. I see. And then how long does it typically take for a company to get something like that approved? Oh, it'll range, but I would say uh, um, it can take up to two years. Okay, so it takes a little, you know, it's going to be a, a significant uh, uh, investment to go to, to market with a device like that. It will. It's an investment, um, not only in terms of time, but also in terms of uh, finances. It's not necessarily something anyone would want to do, but it, it does add value in terms of it has been tested, approved, and sent through a ringer to make sure that it is valuable and that it will be effective. Absolutely. And then sort of more on the software side, if I'm you know, processing something like clinical trial data and I want to be able to perform analytics on the data, produce shareable reports, what do I need to know about in terms of maintaining privacy in this type of scenario? So within medical research, there are some pretty strict guidelines about anonymization and de-identification and which one is appropriate where, um, de-identification being the removal of often certain attributes, anonymization being um, the removal of identifying information. Very, very mixed up sometimes. Um, but in terms of thinking about how to share clinical data, um, which is valuable, incredibly valuable because one clinical trial may produce uh, a, a font of data that can be used to infer or um, investigate any number of potential outcomes for any number of diseases, um, whether that data was intended to be collected or not during the clinical trial. Um, for example, uh, we find that certain medications that were intended for a use during a clinical trial have the side effect that is beneficial of, say, lowering heart or uh, excuse me, lowering blood pressure. Uh, and so we want to be sure to encompass all of those benefits as well. And so collecting as much data as possible and having appropriate restrictions on what can be shared and what not uh, is really valuable. But there's always a but. Uh, if you take too much out in certain contexts, then you can infer less. That example I gave of the number of cars works the other direction. The fewer attributes you have, the less accurate something like trying to figure out how something potentially will affect a disease um, or an outcome, a health outcome, is also true. Yes. And then you know, we recently did a show on uh, differential privacy, which has you know, a similar trade-off. Are you seeing people start to use differential privacy? as a technique to uh, um, you know, address or allow people to do sort of analytics and machine learning without um, the trade-off of identifying the individual in the, in the end results? I have seen it to some extent. I definitely think that it was on a little clearer trajectory before the pandemic. Um, as in any case, the pandemic really uh, disrupted pretty much everything stem to stern um, in health as well as everywhere else. Um, and I think there's a lot more consideration of DP or differential privacy now that we're, we had this entire um, collection of public data from people using things like contact tracing and whatnot. Um, and there's a lot more consideration of, wait, now we have the data. Now we have to figure out how to maintain privacy. Do you think, you know, 
given like the world that we've lived in the last couple of years with the pandemic, and then there's been a lot of, I think, investment in tools and technologies. You mentioned contact tracing. If this happened now versus, you know, three years ago, do you think we would be in a better place from a technology standpoint to be able to uh, sort of manage the problem? I would certainly like to think so, um, that we have learned from both our mistakes and our successes and would come back stronger for it. Uh, I do think that there would be a lot more awareness of privacy around data technology and health technologies, and that there's an increased awareness of health as a communal item, and that when we make choices about our health, it's not always just about us. Um, We now know that things like contact tracing and stuff can help us uh, figure out how diseases move through people when there's a really big disease that's moving through a lot of people very quickly. It can help us trace variants in the case of COVID. And that's going to, be, as we become a more globalized society, that's going to become a lot more uh, front and center in our conversations is as we all travel around the world and become a global society, what does it mean to be a healthy global society? Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so as well that we've made, you know, um, the investment that's happened in the last couple of years that we've you know, figured out some things for if something like this happens, you know, in the future that we're in a better position to sort of manage it. So, you know, during the pandemic, you know, I guess speaking of the pandemic, I actually, uh, my wife and I had uh, two, two kids. So I have, you know, I'm a parent of two young children. I think one thing that's now on my radar you know, for, far more than it was just a few years ago, is that there's an increasing amount of technology that is targeted at children or even technology that ends up with children as a user, even if there isn't the intended audience, like an IoT device in someone's home. How does developing for children impact the types of privacy and security considerations that a company needs to be thinking about? Well, there are definitely uh, substantial pieces of legislation in particular out of California around how technology can be used to benefit children. And it, we're still somewhat unclear on whether or to what extent it can benefit children. I have colleagues at FPF that could speak much more knowledgeably about this broadly than I could. But in terms of health, there have been challenges um, with being concerned about youth health and children's health. There's also the implicitness that there is a healthy for a child um, beyond just not being sick all the time. Um, which in fact many children are, because that's the nature of building an immune system in some cases. Uh, But not too long ago, there was a FTC case uh, with WW International, or what we would have called Weight Washers not that long ago, where they were marketing products for younger children. Um, And that didn't really work out to their benefit. Um, Weight loss for children is kind of a hairy bear um, though we do talk about living in you know, ob- an obesity epidemic, um, I think we've all re- re- reframed epidemic in our, our minds in general. Um, and, but it's really brought into light, too, how technology can help us understand variations. And can technology encompass, health technology encompass um, these vast and different ideas of what health or what healthy or unhealthy is? Um, so who's to say? I mean, it's one of the greatest things about trying to, or roughest things, I guess I should say, about trying to uh, deliver a definition of sensitive health data is we don't really have a great definition for any one of those three words. Uh, And I I look forward to seeing us develop technology that leads to encompassing those various ideas of what health and healthy can be in a more inclusive way. 
Yeah, so sort of looking towards, I guess, industry trends and the future of, um, you know, health, digital privacy, what are, I guess, some of the big challenges in privacy that we need to solve, you know, kind of looking towards the future? I think in general, one of the things we'll need to solve is the issue of language and understanding what we're talking about. Um, as, as someone who has a background in environmental research, I don't love the term ecosystem or data ecosystem. Um, it really reduces the ability to hold uh, accountability in certain contexts. And accountability, we, we tend to see it as a bad thing in the regulatory landscape, but in fact, it's quite good. In many cases, it helps us understand what we can do better. Um, and when we talk about ecosystems, I've, I've said this before, but it's sort of my pithy uh, quote is, you can't hold the clouds accountable for the rain. You can't hold the clouds accountable for the rain, whether it kills people in a flood or saves people from drought. Um, and so when we talk about health systems and health ecosystems, I far prefer thinking about this. And if we must have some sort of an analogy, I prefer thinking about it in terms of hydraulic systems or um, water systems, which is these things flow and who it flows through and how it flows through is really important to thinking about who should be held accountable, whether things go right or wrong or within various parts. And we've discussed over this whole conversation, like who is on the hook for data privacy? Is it the consumer customer or is it a collector, a processor? And thinking about term, things in terms of water systems is way more effective than just talking about it in, uh, in a very large, uh, sometimes overwhelming ecosystem. Yeah, I think you make a really, really good point. And this is something that I haven't really heard someone mention before is that it, we do have a big challenge around language when it comes to just understanding the space and like what a company is responsible for. Like if we can't sort of agree on what PII is and define what sensitive data is and define what anonymous data is, then it's going to be really, really hard for a company that maybe doesn't have core competency in it to understand this, the, the landscape and what the responsibilities are to begin with. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And language is the pilings for those great guardrails that we appreciate, even if they don't always fall in uh, a particular person or company's favor. Um, knowing those guardrails are there is what gives us guidance on how we should operate and what the norms and standards are. So that language is going to become very essential very quickly. And the benefit of being married to a linguist is I sort of get the whole uh, range on this. And um, in his estimation, it is coming, uh, but he also reminds me that English is one of the large, I believe the largest in terms of dictionary words, languages in the world, and we keep adding. So uh, there will likely be more language coming our way in the future, as well as hopefully some good definitions. Beyond language as you know, one of these central challenges for privacy looking to the for future, are there you know, tools, technologies, or trends that you're particularly excited about? Uh, I continue to be very excited about end-to-end -end encryption. I think it's a very simplistic tool that shows a lot of promise and is fairly easy to explain. I mean, maybe not from a complete technological uh, perspective, but in terms of explaining to a consumer, this is what happens. The data is on your phone or your object or your item. That's where it goes and that's where it stays. You are responsible. So in the case of let's say um, a subpoena or a warrant for the phone, 
the consumer is on the hook to either hand over the phone or figure out how to deal with it. Um, whereas, uh, you know, encryption on the other end, uh, in many cases, even if a warrant or a subpoena were to be um, put to a company, they couldn't provide anything of value anyway. Uh, I think that's very appealing in terms of its simplicity, but simplicity um, comes with the challenge of it doesn't always cover everything we need it to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the growth of platforms like WhatsApp and Signal and these other messaging platforms that support end-to-end -end encryption of the box have done a lot in terms of, you know, acting as their own PR agency for the uh, technology of end-to-end -end encryption and has made it, I think, something that, you know, lots of people outside of the technology industry at least kind of have an, uh, a loose, you know, peripheral understanding of like, oh, that's a good thing. I want my data protected. I don't want the sort of company in the middle that's supporting this platform to be able to look at any of this information. And that's, you know, feels very, um, you know, personal from a messaging platform because there's lots of messages that you're sharing with your friends and family. You wouldn't want anybody to be able to see. Uh, and I think I can see tons and tons of different applications of that technology when it comes to personal health uh, management as well. Absolutely. And when we talk about children, um, we are going to be dealing with the most tech savvy group of people that have yet existed here in not too long and largely right now. Uh, and interestingly, we're also dealing with the group of people who have never not existed digitally. Um, I, I kind of favor and find benefit and some comfort in the fact that I didn't really create a digital footprint until nearly into my 20s. Um, whereas in many cases with kids, we're creating this digital body for them, whether that's in health or social media, um, that they can never really take back. And, you know, there many of them aren't old enough to really give permission for or understand the full consequences of as we as adults are making those decisions for them. Um, so I'm very interested to see if this is going to be a boon for them or if this is going to be not unlike the climate crisis where choices their elders made do, do not necessarily benefit them in the long run. Mm -hmm. So as we you know wrap up here, is there anything else you'd like to share? The last thing I always like to share about privacy is just introspection on what does privacy mean to us as individuals and within our culture and communities. There's been lots of discussion around things like localization, particularly in Europe, but also within indigenous communities in the U.S. and Canada. And what does it mean in a particular community, in our particular communities, with our identities? What does it mean to have privacy? And what does that privacy look like specifically related to health? And within that, those definitions I talked about around what is healthy and what is unhealthy and how we decide what those mean to us. Uh, I think that's a great place to start when we talk about privacy and when we decide where we're going with health data and health, digital health in general. Yeah, I think that's great, great advice. I think it's a great place to kind of uh, to wrap up. And uh, Jordan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was super insightful. I think we're probably, you know, barely scratching the surface here. I, you know, I'd love to down, down the road, we could probably do an entire episode on building for applications for children and technology around that, that space. So, you know, we might have you or one of your colleagues on the show down the road, but thank you so much and uh, cheers. Thank you so much, Sean.